This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. Let's take a look at one of the most marking stories of Western literature, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will read the narrative from the Gospel of Luke, which was one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. As we discussed back in the Christmas special, the story is not written from the perspective of a Jew or even an immediate disciple of Jesus, but from a Greek man, like think Sophocles Greek, but a medical doctor by the name of Luke, uh, a friend of Paul of Tarsus, or St. Paul as he's known today. The story of Luke and how he brings the Greek perspective to the story of Jesus is interesting in and of itself. And if you haven't listened to the Christmas special, go back and catch that. It'll fill you in on what we mean. We also want to read it from the beautiful and most significant translations of the English language, uh, one that the world will never really understand its impression, the King James Version, written in 1611. Um, it's a fascinating story in its own right, and one we should tell perhaps on a, another religious holiday, but in 1604, King James was actually considering himself a bit of a theologian, and had uh, he had even translated portions of the Bible himself, and he set out to create what today we would call a peer-reviewed textual translation of the Bible. Forty-seven scholars worked tirelessly to produce the most faithful, scholarly, and ultimately, the most accessible translation the world has ever known. And even though today it may feel difficult to read, its influence is immeasurable. That's right. And I know uh, you're talking about how it changed the political landscape by empowering individuals. Uh, It had a a very important effect and impact on the English language in and of itself. Phrases like, my brother's keeper, fall from grace, eye for an eye, thou shalt not judge, by the skin of one's teeth, salt of the earth, the prodigal son. I could go on and on uh, and talk about all the expressions that came out of this translation of the Bible. And lots of them, people didn't really, don't even know that's where they came from. 
Victor Hugo, author of Les Mis, uh, said this, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. <laughs> Interesting seeing how as Shakespeare was one of the uh, 47 yeah, writers. Well, he, he, they say he had uh, an input. Yes. Uh, today in that spirit, let's take a look at the most sacred story in this sacred text. As you said, Gary, we don't really want to focus on the author of this particular story today since we did that already. But instead, let's drop the story into historical context, which the historical context of this story is interesting in and of itself. I also want to bring in this concept of the archetypal perspective. And in that sense, we want to look at it from something of a psychological perspective. Lots of the ideas uh, that you'll hear today come from um, Thomas Foster, and he has a great book called How to Read Literature Like a Professor. And if you enjoy reading classical literature and want to know really a little bit more, but not like super hardcore, difficult reading. <laughs> Research uh, level. Yeah, if you don't want that, it's really a delightful book written uh, for the layman. It's an informative book, and he really breaks down into fun and simple language some of the extremely complex notions of literary analysis, but specifically archetypes. And that's what we're going to look at today because the resurrection narrative really is an important archetype. So by way of getting us into this archetypal frame of mind, Gary, what should any basic student of literature that doesn't want to be a psychologist <laughs> uh, need to know or understand about architects and how architects, archetypes, and how does that help us understand something like a sacred text, something like the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? <laughs> sure. So the basic concept or observation of Young is that there are images, symbols, characters, and situations that are instinctual expressions of the nature of man. He's going to say that there are things imprinted in the unconscious psyche of man, meaning all people. Uh, that's been debated and perhaps is informed by religious tradition or other theories, but I think it's pretty undisputed that there is absolute evidence that there are symbols, characters, and situations that reoccur in every culture on the globe, through time and in all eras that are not connected. So what do I mean by that? Let's take certain numbers. Uh, if we look at the number three, it represents divinity. There are three parts of the Christian divinity, but there are three main gods in Hinduism too, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. That's not a coincidence. That's a pattern that we see all over the world. And take the color white. It means purity and innocent. And that is not Western culture. That's all over the world. And that crosses the expanse of time. Uh, the symbol of water, it means birth, resurrection, and purification. And again, that is in all literature all over the world. There are hundreds and hundreds of archetypes. And according to the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, they are a part of what he has called our collective unconscious. In other words, this history that we all as humans share that we're not sure where it comes from. Certain things mean certain things to all people, and it's in our consciousness. It's not something we've learned. So the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, let's make this connection. This story is archetypal from beginning to end, meaning this story repeats and it's, this pattern is found in other stories and in other places. So We'll start with the Last Supper, and then we'll follow this through the resurrection, and we'll be able to see that this is a story that 
we may have read, even if we've never read this story many times, even if you're not a Christian, even if you've never heard of the Christian story at all, the pattern is familiar, and Young is going to argue that it's in our brains. <laughs> right. Our DNA. I don't know where it is. Our subconscious. Uh, in some sense, yes. And in some sense, we've read it a lot and we love it. Uh, let's just think about blockbuster movies for a moment. Like The Matrix, that's the most obvious that first comes to my mind. Uh, Neo is definitely a Christ figure. And that story has a death and a resurrection. Then we have uh, Lord of the Rings. Gandalf has a death and a resurrection. Obviously, the Chronicles of Narnia with Aslan. But that one was written to be an allegory. But let's look at some that were not. Uh, Man of Steel, the Superman story, or Anakin in Star Wars, or uh, E.T. in E.T., uh, James Cole in 12 Monkeys, or Luke in Cool Hand Luke. Uh, of course, we pointed out Simon in Lord of the Flies, but that's just a cursory list. It goes on and on. Young tells us that these archetypes reveal the nature of our souls, who we are as people, as humanity, in a sense, they're the key to unlocking what we know about life. It's very deep, and I'll tell you that reading young is not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> well, all that to say, what we want to do today is just read portions of the narrative of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and maybe point out the archetypes there. We won't try to sort out uh, the mysteries of the universe. You may need to Even have... though you know all of them? <laughs> of course, I'm a woman, but we may need to have something to do for the occupation of the quarantine. <laughs> but hopefully uh, we'll be able to uh, kind of go through and think about more fully and deeply a story that has shaped uh, not just Western civilization, but if I hear you right, we're suggesting that it has uh, deeper roots than that, perhaps inside the evolutionary nature of man himself. So on that note, Gary, should we give it a go? Let's do it. Um, okay, it's hard to know exactly where to start the story, so we're going to start it with The Last Supper. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, uh, take a moment to recall Leonardo da Vinci's amazing mural painted on a wall of a covenant in Milan, one of the world's most recognizable paintings. Uh, get that picture in mind as I read to you Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. And when the hour has come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave it unto them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Thomas Foster will tell you that in literature, a meal is never just a meal. Eating together means something. And of course, if we think about it, we know that it does. 
Uh, if someone asks you out to eat, it's not because, you know, he needs someone to split the hamburger. Uh, it's an extension of friendship. Maybe it's an extension of a romantic relationship. You know, Thanksgiving in America is not just about eating turkey. Some people don't even like turkey. But it's about the bonding of bringing families together. Italians have three-hour dinners, not because they need to eat for three hours, but it's a sign of collected peace, of, of, of community, of love. It's about bonding. It's about coming together. And that is exactly what we're supposed to see here in this text. Uh, Jesus Christ is institutionalizing one of the most sacred moments in the Christian church today. And it doesn't matter how you interpret bread and wine and their plenty of ways of doing it. What we cannot argue, and I think uh, archetypally we must see, and it shows up in all literature, as this is a covenant. Uh, Sometimes in literature, these moments may or may not be holy, uh, but it is here. Uh, The togetherness is to be remembered. It won't last very long because in life it never does, but it is sacred. Uh, The disciples and Jesus are going to share this moment of camaraderie, of compassion, of love. And then they are going to leave the room together, go up on a mountain that's called the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus wants to pray, but everyone else is going to fall asleep. And it's in this moment, the story will pick up at the foot of the mountain, of the Mount of Olives, in a place called Gethsemane, a garden. So they've had their dinner. They've had their moment. They've left. It's the middle of the night. They've gone up to pray. They've fallen asleep. Let's pick it up and let the drama unfold. And when he rose up from prayer and was to come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, Behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off. And of course, Judas betraying Jesus is very uh, memorable, and lots of people recognize that name. But needless to say, this is a very, very rough night. Uh, After Jesus' arrest, he's taken uh, in the middle of the night to the high priest, and they're going to hold a private and unofficial cross-examination. This is going to take place all night. It's going to involve beating. And after this, he's taken to the temple police for safekeeping so that he can be tried in a more official way uh, before the Supreme Court in the morning. And that Supreme Court uh, was called the Sanhedrin. So just for clarification, 
Um, the Sanhedrin had complete jurisdiction over all things religious and was composed of 70 members that were scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and elders. Uh, these were the Jewish leaders. This court met in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stone in the temple court, and the president of it was called the high priest. The members of the court would sit in a semicircle so every member could see every other member and the prisoner would face all of them. Spectators could stand behind them. And according to the law, all charges must be supported by the evidence of two witnesses independently examined. Uh, one interesting point is that a member of the court could speak against a prisoner, then change his mind and speak for him, but not vice versa. Um, it was a court truly designed for fairness, and when a verdict was due, every member from youngest to oldest had to give an individual judgment. For an acquittal, a majority of one was all that you needed, and a death sentence could never be carried out the same day it was given. A night must elapse, given a chance for a, a condemnation to become mercy. This is interesting to know because what we see in the Jesus story is that all these rules and regulations were violated on this occasion. The charge of the Sanhedrin was that of blasphemy, which is to claim to be the Son of God and insult the majesty of God. This, of course, is punishable by death. But the Jews at that time had no power to carry out the death sentence, so they needed to bring Jesus to the Romans. However, the Romans didn't care at all about blasphemy against a Jewish god, so this charge is never mentioned before Pilate, the Roman governor. So, Christy, why don't you read this part of the story for us? Sure. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together, and they led him unto their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto, him, unto them, If I tell you... Ye will not believe me, and if I also ask ye, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Yet ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves has, have heard of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently, accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. 
And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity with themselves. What we see here is that Jesus is charged with seditious agitation. They bring up this idea that he's going around encouraging people not to pay their taxes, which of course is not at all what the problem was. But even Herod knew that this was a veiled accusation of something else. Herod knew they hated this guy. He probably knew the guy wasn't really a threat, but he also knew the Jewish leaders could really make his life difficult. So he did the obvious thing and punted. (laughs) And once he was told that Jesus was from Galilee, he saw his opportunity to get out and he said, "Uh uh-huh, this is not my jurisdiction. And he sends Jesus over to Pilate and basically says, this is your problem. I am tagging out. And Pilate's kind of happy to tag in. Pilate really didn't want to do anything with Jesus either. It's interesting that Roman justice uh, was was really proud of itself, and it was supposed to be impartial. It was the glory of Rome. But at the same time, what do you do with a mob? And a mob was what they had on their hands. People were worked up. They were going nuts. Think protests. Think riots. Uh, He's going to try four different ways to get Jesus off the hook. Uh, But the Jews are committed. They're angry. They're mad. And he basically said, okay, here's my plan. Let me find the worst person in the entire country and then give you an option. I'll either let out this person that is the worst person I can imagine or Jesus. And they don't go for that. They're going to say, we'll take Barabbas. We don't care. We'll take the worst person you can think of. We want him gone. So eventually Pilate understood that either Jesus was going down or he was going down. And he did, you know, what most people do. Well, dude, better you than me. So move on down. And Jesus has to go down the road to Calvary. Give it a read. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release us unto Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast in prison. Pilate therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto him. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go." And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Just as a point of clarification, uh, in Roman culture, when a criminal is condemned to be crucified, which means being hung on a cross publicly, his own cross was laid on his shoulders and he was marched to the crucifixion site 
by the longest way possible. Usually these guys were made to walk up every street being led by a soldier who would hold a sign up with his crime written on it. And of course, this is obviously meant to scare the crime out of anyone thinking about crime in Rome at this time. Uh, This is exactly what we're reading here, except Jesus can't manage the cross. He's been beaten up by too many people. It's likely, by the way, that Jesus was not a small or weak man. He was a carpenter or think of him as a a bricklayer, a working man. But he'd been pummeled all night by all sorts of soldiers and he's given out. A man by the name of Simon, a Cyrenian, is pressed into service by the Roman soldier and made to carry the cross. Uh, One interesting thing to think about, of course, this is such an aside, but there's Simon the Cyrenian comes up again uh, in the Bible in a strange way. He has a son named Rufus, uh, which we don't have time to get into, but it's interesting because apparently uh, Simon, because of this incident, became uh, a Christian and a follower of Christ. But at this point, he's not a Christian or a follower of Christ, and he doesn't have a son named Rufus there. He's just the unlucky guy who happens to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Indeed, of course. Uh, And here, Jesus is famously going to die between the two thieves, and we'll look at Luke 23. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. I want to point out that we see lots of archetypes here. The sky goes black, and black, of course, is a sign of evil. The world at this moment is at its darkest. Betrayal of our values has taken over at this point. The Jews had betrayed their own values. They defied who their own code of conduct in the Sanhedrin because of hate. The Romans had betrayed their 
values and their code of conduct and did something they know or they knew they shouldn't have done because of fear. And someone died. Someone everybody knew was innocent. Yet darkness prevailed. And at this moment, what we see is the whole earth goes dark. Total darkness. And of course, Jesus cried out before his death. And of course, a more modern translation we'll see is the phrase kind of, it is finished, is, is kind of the last thing, the last idea that Jesus is going to bring forth. And it leaves us with the question of what is it that he's talking about? Uh, he doesn't end with the idea that I'm finished, as in I'm destroyed, or my movement is finished, but it's the idea that his work is finished. But of course, uh, the story is not finished because there's more to go. Although it feels like the crucifixion should be the climax of the story, the point of no return, and in that sense it is, when he decided to go to the cross, you can't go back from that. But it isn't the end of the story because after Jesus dies, a member of the Sanhedrin, and remember the Sanhedrin was that 70-person council that we talked about Uh, In the beginning of the story, there was a rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea, and he asked to have Jesus's body. He had not approved, and he had been against this whole thing. And after Jesus was crucified, he took Jesus's body and buried it in his family tomb. And we have to remember that that doesn't mean in the ground like we do around here. Their tombs are like caves. And then three days later, We will have Easter and the real end of the story. So, Gary, will you finish it up for us? Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, Two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Now, remember that the Jewish Sabbath is the Christian Saturday, and it is not the Christian Holy Day. The Christian Sunday, which is the Holy Day in the Christian faith, is the first day of the week because it commemorates the resurrection of Christ. Now, I like the fact that it this story is kind of ending with the women of the Bible. They'll finish out the narrative, just saying. Uh, the tomb was actually a cave, and so when they come to... The tomb, these women are there to embalm the body because they had not been able to do that on the Sabbath. But when they get there, the stone is rolled away and they're met with the news that Jesus is gone. And this, of course, is the heart of the resurrection story, that all important fact that there is an empty tomb. And the question that unites and divides people into this day is the question that, of course, is in the text. Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Well, Western literature has inarguably viewed Jesus as the most noblest archetypal hero, uh, the perfect archetypal pattern of humanity, and Christianity believes he is a living presence. And that's what you will see in every piece of Christian art and music and story. So to conclude today, we would like to leave you with the Easter spirit of hope, renewal, resurrection, and rebirth. May Easter 2020 bring with it a promise and that the phrase, it is finished, apply not only to the coronavirus, although we definitely need to apply it to that, but to the many hardships that have been brought our way and that today we can embrace a sense of hope, renewal, and of course, resurrection. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 